From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. So, uh, we are in the book of Genesis, and we are in Genesis chapter 17. We looked at this on Thursday. Oh, yeah, Friday, I went to have breakfast with my father. That was just a wonderful, wonderful breakfast. We went to a place in Casa Grande. We both um, felt very safe through good social distancing. It was at an IHOP. Um, very, very great uh, opportunity to just spend some time with my dad. So uh, thank you for letting me do that on Friday. Uh, and it, you know, you need that every once in a while. Otherwise, you go stir crazy, right? And I've, my dad is older, and I know he's at risk, but uh, he felt very comfortable. I felt very comfortable um, because, you know, there's so much cleaning going on right now that it's, it is hard to contract it when everybody's wearing masks and everybody's cleaning, washing their hands and all that sort of thing, which they did very well. Uh, so yeah, we are in Genesis 17. We talked on Thursday about this new covenant with Abram and it kind of had two parts to it. First of all, God said, I'll make you a great nation. And the way we're going to seal that is that you and everybody in your household uh, forever are going to circumcise, which is cutting off the foreskin to the male anatomy. Um, I can't even imagine how that conversation went between Abram and Ishmael, um, the wild kid. It's like, uh, how do you have that conversation with your son? I, I would not be able to do that very well. I mean, it would take an act of God telling me, you will do that before I would do something like that. But this has been the covenant well, and not only Ishmael, but apparently everybody in the camp or in the tribe of Abram. Uh, I don't know if he made a big announcement uh, and said, hey, I got news for you. Um, I don't know how that went. Don't even want to know how that went, but I'm sure it was comical. Uh, and it also probably speaks to the amount of power and respect um, that Abram had in that community to be able to say, we're going to do this and everybody does it. Uh, I'm sure that if any president today or any leader, any king today said, this is something we're going to do, uh, there'd be revolting. I, I, th it, would not, it would not happen. But Abram was a great leader, a great, a great person in charge of his tribe, and so he does it. And uh, is able to, and even today, um, I think all the Abrahamic religions still kind of follow that. Um, I guess you could, uh, so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, all the Abrahamic religions follow that. Christianity is an Abrahamic religion. Uh, so you would say, does, do Christians need to be circumcised? Now, Jesus was circumcised. At his time, it was uh, the law that on the eighth day, and in the Jewish calendar, on the eighth day meant a week from today. So, the eighth day, if a person was born today, the eighth day would be Monday of next week. So even though we would consider that seven, seven days, that's actually the eighth day. And we would um, have that person, that young male child, circumcised on the eighth day. And that is typically what happened in the Jewish faith. Jesus did that. But after Jesus came and entered into a new covenantal relationship with God, the old covenant, um, while still in effect, was not necessary. It was not necessary to circumcise. And we know this because 
there was an apostle named Paul who started preaching the good news of Jesus Christ uh, and doing mission work all throughout the Middle East. And he would go into a community and he'd say, by the way, uh, if you want to, you know, be part of the Christian faith, um, you know, the, he would go into a community, let's say that is a Jewish community and all these Jewish men had been circumcised and now Paul goes in and he allows Gentiles to be part of the covenant and the Jewish Gentiles are like, now wait a minute, if they're going to be part of this covenant, if they're going to be part of our movement, which is Christianity called the way, but it's part of the Abraham covenant, then they need to be circumcised. And Paul says, well, this is a bigger decision than I can make. And so he goes all the way back to Jerusalem in Acts 15, and they have what's called the Jerusalem Council. And you have Peter's there, Paul's there, um, Barnabas may have been there. Uh, and, they, and they have all these people in the Jerusalem Council, and they're debating whether or not Gentile converts into Christianity, followers of Jesus, which is a sub-religion sub of, of Judaism, whether or not they need to be circumcised. And they had this big powwow, the very first one. It's the first council. And they decided, no, that uh, Jews uh, can be circumcised, but Gentiles coming into the faith do not need to be circumcised. So we know today that as Christians coming into the faith, that we are not necessarily, uh, we do not have to follow that. We do not need to be circumcised. That goes all the way back to Acts chapter 15 and that council. Uh, and so if anybody tells you that a Christian needs to be circumcised, uh, the answer is no, they don't need to be. Now, there may be other reasons why. Um, I've kind of studied this a little bit throughout my life because, you know, when you have a child, I have a male child, you know, you have to debate whether or not you're going to follow that practice or whatever with your own children. And so uh, I think for the most part, I'm pretty sure Western culture, the vast majority are circumcised, but there is also significant number of people who are not. And um, the medical community goes back and forth as to whether or not it's a good idea or not a good idea. Um, so, um, but as far as the theological uh, stance on it, it is not necessary. The reason why Christians are saved is because they are saved by Jesus Christ. And the mark of that uh, in Christianity is baptism. Now, could you say baptism is the exact same thing as, as circumcision? No, they're two totally different things, uh, and one doesn't necessarily mean the other, but baptism is the sign of the covenant, the entrance into the kingdom. It is, uh, it is where you get all rights and privileges of the kingdom, that's now baptism. And, uh, and you get uh, the Holy Spirit at baptism. You get marked with Jesus at the ba baptism. Um, salvation comes into your life at baptism. All these things happen in baptism because you are now entered into the kingdom with all rights and privileges. So the, the covenant with Abraham is not necessary anymore. Uh, so we do not necessarily require circumcision. Um, if you wanted to say, the baptism is kind of the New Testament version of circumcision. I don't think that'd be too far off the mark, uh, but they are two totally different covenants and not one doesn't necessarily translate to the other. 
But that also brings up an interesting point about when these things happen, because you're brought into the covenant with God at eight days as a male child. Um, as a Christian, then it is, uh, you know, is can that happen at an early age? And of course, the vast majority of Christianity throughout history has said, yes, baptism can happen at right after birth. And that is your mark entrance to the kingdom with all rights and privileges, including the gift of the Holy Spirit. But starting about the 1800s or so, 1700s, uh, it became very, very popular to delay baptism until, until later on in life. Um, and that uh, is kind of a common practice here in the United States today. Uh, and so um, in that case, you wouldn't see it as a necessarily uh, kind of like a New Testament covenantal thing. Uh, you would just see it. If that's the case, if you, baptize, if you baptize later on in life, then baptism is a secondary thing it's, or a tertiary thing. It's not important at all. Um, or maybe it is important, but it doesn't bring any rights and privileges with it. I'm not entirely sure exactly the full theological impact. Or I'm not sure I want to get into it right now because we're still in Genesis 17. Um, the other thing that happened in Genesis 17 is Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah. So there was an H added to their name, the holy H. And so now we know him as Abraham. And now all the songs that we sing about Father Abraham are not Father Abram, but Father Abraham. And uh, so that's kind of where we left it in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, let's see, we left off at verse 27. Well, I'll just go ahead and read a little bit of that. Uh, we'll start at verse 23. And on that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So we now see um, that Ishmael is circumcised at age 13, and uh, any other people born to, to Abraham after that would have been circumcised at death or at birth. And so um, there is even a difference uh, in uh, when these children were circumcised from Abram, uh, Abraham. I'll call him Abraham from now on. Uh, so that now is the standard practice in Abraham's life, in his camp, all the people are there. Um, a lot of people wonder about the fact that women are not circumcised. I mean, this is a male thing. Um, there are some cultures, I understand, where there is some form of female circumcision. I think it's in the, uh, the um, uh, Muslim community, the Islamic community. I think some of them do that. Uh, it is not necessarily biblical from the Old Testament to Ra. Um, but you would say, well, if this is a covenantal agreement between uh, all the males, what about the females? And for this, we have to go back and remember that in the Jewish tradition, there, there was this thought that the covenant came through to the males of the household, but then they forwarded that covenant to all the other people in the household, including the females, the slaves, the servants, and all that. And there was one person, 
that was called the head of the household. And right now, the head of the household, of course, is Abram, right? He, or Abraham. He's now the head of the household. But if his children go and they create their own household, then the firstborn male or the, the husband or you know, the person that's at the top of each household then dictates the religion of everybody in that household. And it was the responsibility of the head of the household to bring forth all the covenantal information to the household. So kind of at Jesus' time, we, the way we saw that working is that the males of the household would go to synagogue. They would discuss and debate God with all the other males in the synagogue, and then they would go back to their household and they would bring that covenant grace, they would bring that godliness into the household by the, by the fact that they were the head of the household. And if, all, if there was a household where the males all died, let's say that the head of the household dies and so it goes to uh, the brother and then he dies and then it goes to children, over the age of 13, and if you know, if all of them died, if there were no female, if there were no males in that household, you can see then how you would be cut off from God because there's no way to have that connection to go into the synagogue, to go into the temple and offer sacrifices and do all the stuff that are required because most of those things, all those things required uh, the head of the household to go do that. Um, so that is why it is so significant in some of the stories in scripture where there is no male in the household. So if you're a widow, your husband dies, your children are gone, you have no connection whatsoever. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why you had to take care of the widows and the orphans because they had no connection to God. They were basically left out of society. Of course, Jesus comes along and what does he say? He says the number one commandment is to love God, love your neighbor. One of the best ways to love your neighbor, truest form of love that I can see is to take care of widows and orphans. And that actually is in James. So the book of James, a New Testament book written by Jesus' brother, James. And so uh, that is one of the things that Jesus felt very, very strongly about, even commanded us to do. So even in today, in our world, we take special care for widows, orphans, um, also people in prison, the destitute, the poor, uh, people who society is kind of left behind, Jesus commands us to not leave them behind, to, to make sure you take care of them. And uh, so we do as a society. You know, and that brings up another interesting point is that um, there are societies around the world that if you are poor, you have you are poor because of karma, because either you or somebody else in your life uh, did something wrong, and so now you're poor because uh, because you were not following God properly, and you deserve being poor. And Christianity is not that at all. Christianity is God loves everybody, and so the reason why I bring that up is because people ask a lot of times. People ask, is Christ, is is the United States a Christian nation? And that is a very difficult question to answer because one of the ways you could answer that is what percentage of the people in your society call themselves Christian? That's one way of answering that question. But another way of answering that question is what, how does society treat widows and orphans? How does society treat uh, prisoners who are in prison? And if the answer to that question is our society 
go, tries to go to great lengths to protect those who are marginalized, those who are poor, those who have no connection to resources and all that. If the answer to that question is our society does that, then I will tell you that the roots of your society go all the way back to Jesus Christ. Because the only reason a society places that much emphasis on widows and orphans is because Jesus commanded it. So here in the United States, we place an emphasis on that because we are part of a society that is maybe not enshrined in the Constitution that we're a Christian society, but that the practices and the beliefs and the culture and the ethos, the DNA of the United States is based upon Christianity. There, there's no question whatsoever. And we, our society derives benefit because we are still, uh, the DNA of our society is still Christian. And I do fear what would happen to our society if for some reason we started saying we're no longer a Christian nation and we're no longer going to follow, we're no longer going to place an uh, emphasis on those who are poor and destitute and all that sort of thing. Because in a lot of societies throughout history, the poor were killed. They were thrown outside the city gates. You know, they were left for dead. Um, and that was perfectly acceptable in their society. Perfectly acceptable. Um, in the Roman culture, if you didn't want a child, it was perfectly acceptable to take the child out in the field and let the child die. I mean, that was, you know, pre-Jesus Roman culture. That was perfectly acceptable. Um, the, it, it, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that Christianity has deep roots in the United States. And so don't get rid of Christianity because you don't believe that there's a God or don't believe there's any benefit to Jesus or something like that. You, you may be throwing some very, very good things that you believe in that are wonderful that have propelled, propelled the United States for 250 years, and you may not want to throw that stuff out. You may want to um, understand where some of these things come from and respect them and honor them because I say this all the time. I will put Jesus Christ up against any other spiritual leader throughout history because he was, he was the most amazing, wonderful, loving, compassionate, uh, outside the box uh, compared to all the other religions thinker that there ever was and ever will be. Uh, when he said, love God and love your neighbor, and this is what it looks like, you know, watching after the homeless and the poor and the sick and all that, that was very, very, very countercultural. It still stays with us today, but only because our DNA is still based in Christianity. And if it ever stops being based in Christianity, it will be a culture that you may not like. It may not be a good culture. I just want to point that out. So that, uh, that all talks about circumcision and how that goes through our culture today. Um, we'll go ahead and go back now to... Uh, to scripture and uh, let's see that's on 27 so um, yeah the other thing that comes out of this eh, probably worth just a little time on is that uh, the the God that told Abram to circumcise is El Shaddai he says uh, Ani El Shaddai I am God Shaddai and uh, some of you may have heard El Shaddai before uh, Amy Grant had a really, really popular song back uh, 20, 30 years ago called El Shaddai. It was written by Michael Card. 
El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Ilyana Adonai. And um, basically that song became popular and so people talked about El Shaddai. Shaddai, not entirely sure where uh, this is uh, a name that's used throughout the Old Testament, but nobody's really quite sure what it means. In our scripture reading, well, we can go back and look at it. Um, uh, yeah, it's right here, verse three. Abram fell face down and God says to him, uh, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You are the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Um, no, verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. So um, I was actually trying to find that on Thursday. Um, but El Shaddai uh, is one of those names in the Old Testament that we're not entirely sure what it means. Uh, we believe it means, you can see here, was God Almighty. Shaddai could also be a place location. Uh, Shad is, is a female breast. Uh, Shaddaim is breasts. So it could be Shaddai is the God who holds us in his breasts, maybe. Uh, it is not entirely clear as to what, you know, how the best way to translate that. But in here, uh, in this particular version, which is the NIV or the ESV, it's God Almighty. And it might be worth just looking um, to the ways that the different people, we can look at this, the different people have for the names of gods, because we have a few now. If you remember, at the creation account, it was Elohim. Uh, in the beginning, uh, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. And then Melchizedek, the high priest, came along. We talked about him, and it was El Elyon, which is God Most High. And then we had Hagar, who goes out and this gets this vision from God. And, and says, I will call you El Roi because you're the God who sees me. Uh, and now we have Abraham with El Shaddai, God Almighty. And it might be, it just might be worth remembering because these names are just different names of, of the same God. It's El, right? But it's El Oyi, El Yon, El Roi, El Shaddai. Um, these are different characteristics of God that uh, all the same God, but here in Genesis, we call them different names. Uh, and so maybe instead of trying to remember the names themselves, just remember the people that the names are associated with and what their circumstance was and how they looked at God and what God delivered them from. If you'll remember, Melchizedek uh, brought to Abram the fact that he was not alone, um, that, that there, and he gave a tithe offering to this, uh, to this Melchizedek to show that there was a deeper, uh, more long-lasting covenant in the world that went even beyond Abram. You have this Hagar uh, who said, God who sees me, and now you have Abram, which is God Almighty. So those are the different names from God, and there'll be more as we go forward. There's, there's lots and lots of names from God. It's one God, but it's just a name for God. Um, as opposed to some religions who have multiple gods with multiple names. Uh, in Christianity and in Judaism, uh, Judaism, it's the same one God, it's monotheism, but he's just known by very many different names. And so this becomes important uh, in, the, uh, in the Exodus uh, that we'll at some point probably get into it. But at the Exodus, uh, Moses, who's writing this, 
says, all right, I've heard all these different names of God. What's the name you want to go by? And so God tells him. Uh, and then, of course, Moses is writing this, so we've already seen the name of God, uh, which is uh, Yahweh, the, the name of God. We talked about that earlier. So um, that is uh, to the end of ver chapter 17. And um, let's see. Then we get into the three visitors. And... Um, the Lord appeared to Abram near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Um, Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Well, of course, a um, couple things here. First of all, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now he's Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent. So as we can see, Abraham is still living in tents because he's a nomadic tribe. He's not tied to the land. He's tied to God, basically. He is known as the man who's tied to God. And so um, God goes with him wherever Abraham goes, whereas opposed to many, many, many religions where God lives at a fixed location, um, if you go even around the world today, believe it or not, there's still some cultures where they have to translate the Bible into that particular language. I remember one story that came to me from uh, Lutheran Bible translators. Uh, they were doing a translation, and the question that they came up with is, how, how do we name God? Well, how, like, who is, do we use the name El? Uh, do we take the local name of God? Uh, do we try to find out if they have a name for God? And do we place that in for the name of God and say God? Or do we come up with something else? Because if there's a lot of baggage associated with God, then you don't translate that baggage, so you don't use that name for God. But if it's just a generic name for God, then you can say God. And so the people that translate the Bible have an incredibly difficult, challenging time trying to figure out what's the name of God. And the one story that I remember is they went into a community. It was an African community. They're trying to figure out, you know, what, what, is, uh, what is God and all that. And they said, well, God, the ultimate God is the guy that lives in that cave. And in that cave is God. Uh, and, and the name for God was the guy, the, the spirit that dwells in the cave or something like that. And I remember... The, the translators are trying to figure out, okay, do we call all throughout the Bible uh, the, the spirit that lives in the cave uh, because it's very real, they understand it, that's their concept of God because some people don't have a concept of God, you know, monotheism, or does it have too much baggage because he lives in a cave and he's a spirit and he's got all these stories about him. And um, I don't actually remember how they ended up translating that. Uh, I, my supposition is is that they, it, there's too much baggage to the spirit that lives in the cave, so they came up with something else for the name of God, and then they wrapped everything else around it. You know, all these little things you think about when just translating the Bible. Um, so, for example, here in Genesis 17, it's God Almighty. But it, if I were translating the Bible, I don't know if I would use God Almighty. I might actually use a God Shaddai uh, because it isn't used that often, and there's... there's uh, you know, then the person who's reading the scripture would have to then go and find out, okay, what does Shaddai mean? And, uh, and, and that sort of thing, you know, prompt the reader of the Bible to actually do a little bit of research themselves and not be lazy. But the NIV, the ESV, they, 
they, for some reason, have followed along with the tradition of everybody else, and they call them, uh, they say, God Almighty. Um, it would be interesting to look at the different versions and see how they translate. Maybe we'll do that tomorrow. That'd be kind of fun, because not every uh, not every version necessarily translates it the same, and so it would be interesting to see how they all translate it. That'd be a story for tomorrow. But today we have three visitors, three visitors that come visit Abraham in the great trees. And so Abraham goes out and bows down low before the three visitors. And who are the three visitors? And does that, does that mean anything that there's three of them? And what do they do? Um, what power do they have? Remember, anytime you get uh, somebody coming, you have to say, okay, what... Do, what can these people do? And so we'll get into that story tomorrow um, because I think we've run out of time for today. So um, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, if you'll join me with prayer. Dear God, thanks for this day. Uh, thanks for the beauty of this day. Uh, thank you for being an almighty God. Watch over us, uh, our community, our nation, our world. In Jesus' name.